whereas he likes it or doesn't like it. He will innovate constantly if he feels that it's a, a, an in-tune expression. So when, we, when we're moving you know, now to this real image of the cross, we thought we'd better ask him. And as I was writing him, he remembered that he himself, the pictures of himself as an SRF monk, he wore this big amethyst cross. And uh, one of the symbols that you can buy from SRF is a gold cross with a little lotus in the middle, which I believe is the symbol that Master designed. Swami said he thought Master designed it. In any case, it was. So, so the Christian cross is integrated into the SRF teaching, self-realization teaching. And Swami said, after all, it is the second coming. It is, I mean, Jesus is right in the middle, so we don't have to shy away from it. And the cross is a classic symbol that was a symbol before Jesus even took it on. Before it became Christian, it was always there. So anyway, that's where we're going now. You'll see we've got some pictures from the architect today. And when we get closer, we'll show everyone what it looks like. So did you actually um, send him a picture of that? There's a, Elizabeth and Ron have put it up on the website, and I guess they, oh, right. they sent it over to us. So that's what we saw on the website. I didn't know they had done that, so yeah. I sent him a long verbal explanation and a, <laughs> free, a freehand sketch of my own. Yeah, I looked on the web. <laughs> so we were not, the left hand did not know what the right hand was doing at that point. I was trying to settle the philosophical question of the cross because I saw it coming. You know, I saw it coming from all directions already, and I thought, let's just cut, cut through and find out if this is okay. So anyway, that was fun. I just thought you all should know as we're ready to clap. All right, this is our very last class of this, of this series. So um, if anyone has any ideas or thoughts that, or questions that you're going to want answered, this will be our last chance on this one. So that doesn't have anything before we start. How many of you read the entire assignment of 100 plus pages? Okay. Those of you who didn't, did you just read the end part? Or did you read nothing? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, won't, I won't take any part. I just wanted to know. Um, go back and read the other parts. Now that I've really studied it more carefully, I might have just told you that you had to read it all. Because, in fact, I'm going to have to talk for parts of it then that you didn't read. Because having read it, I, it just, it's too much of a summer summary of um, I had read it, but I, didn't, I wasn't tuned into what we were doing. You know. um, the themes that I see for tonight, and this partly comes out of her letters, so I am her letters to Master and Master's letters to her. Of course, there are other letters to Master, but there's a section called Gratitude to God and Guru. And then at the end, you have this collection of letters from Master to her. And... The most, um, the most overwhelming energy that you pick up from there, which is not, um, which, which is also present, of course, in everything else that we do, is the extraordinarily intimate and seemingly personal nature of the connection that she had with Yogananda. Um, just, uh, well, the, 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 the phrase is often used that this is a divine romance. And, and, it, and the, the images that many of the saints use um, are often images of human love, um, and often the image of, of lovers, uh, or at least um, the elements of human love. With, and the greatest devotees speak with the greatest passion um, 
whether they're speaking to the guru incarnate or to God himself, they, they use the language of romance and of love. And even I, as I was reading it, it's like, we're so foolish that we somehow think those words belong to human love. We don't realize that they come from divine love. And that those attitudes, the attitudes that we express so passionately and freely to one another um, exist because of the basic um, union of the divine, the infinite, with the soul. And everything else is a reflection of that. It's so, it's so common in human life to think that the human comes first and not to appreciate that the divine comes first. You know, even the spiritual eye, which I was talking about before, it is actually relevant in this sense. I, when we first put the uh, that uh, one up on the altar there, which is actually made out of a piece of cardboard and Christmas wrapping paper, which we did last year, because there was a lot of discussion as to whether or not it would look good and so on. So one midnight just before Christmas, I just crawled around on my room and floor and taped it all together and then just pasted it up there just so that we could have it to think about to see whether we wanted to invest in a big lighted version and so on. That one just, by the way, is five and a half feet. Right now we're talking about it being about four feet, though I guess I said that a minute ago. Anyway, um, and we first put it up there, many people felt quite overwhelmed by it. And there was a lot of opinions, as there always are, as to whether it was big or too big or so on. Swamiji was perfectly diplomatic he, when he saw it because we, you know, I was really anxious for him to see it. He said, he said he loves it, but he said it is a matter of taste. You know, he sort of <laughs> allowed us how that aesthetically it could be smaller. It wasn't required to be that large. But he did make a very interesting comment. He said it should look big enough so that you feel you can walk into it. And someone remarked when we first put it up here and we were meditating him that he was saying he did feel a little overwhelmed by it. But then he realized, he said, in his own sort of inner self, he'd always thought of himself as bigger than the spiritual life. No, it's just, it's not that you really think you are, but that's just how you think about it, isn't that right? Because you think that here I am and then I go inside. And because we're, we're not used to realizing that we are, as we sometimes say, we are the most contracted right now that we will ever be. You know, we are, we are the most compressed version of ourselves, and everything spiritual is bigger than we are now. And the, and the infinite has become con confined in this little body. And it's not that the, that we're it and the infinite. Well, the infinite has become confined, but that doesn't mean it's become less than infinite. So um, there's still this egoic thought that we own all of these things, and this big sense that uh, that we shouldn't be too too passionate about our spiritual life. You know, too expressive, just a little overdone. This sort of thought that we need to be a little more proper about it. Um, it's not quite exactly the same, but it's, it's related. There was a very advanced disciple of Ramana Maharshi, actually Paul Brunton, this well-known author, who Master said um, retained a very high state of samadhi, but then fell from it because, as Master said, he could never quite forget he was an Englishman. And uh, <laughs> Ramana Maharshi's brother, an Indian man, of course, was quite a martinet and used to sort of dictate to everyone and it just rankled so much with Paul Brunton as, as an Englishman to be bossed around by this boss of Lydia. That, that, that little bit of uh, human ego gradually set up a dissonance. Of course, 
at the level of spirituality he had attained, he would recover very quickly from that. But nonetheless, these, these ego-first sort of little ideas really come into us. And uh, when Ramakrishna, who was a great saint of the last century, used to just be so extravagant in his devotion and his worship and his sadhana, people thought he was crazy. And many people were just didn't know how to relate to the way he would weep before the image and stay up all night praying and disregard all normal human considerations of his passion for the divine. It's just sort of, you know, in proper circles, not done. And Ramakrishna himself, though, said, as devotees, it's our duty, you know, to, to dance in ecstasy when others really sit and pray. You know, that we should, whatever an ordinary person would do, we need to do more and more and more. So we find ourselves with Sister Yanamata here, this extraordinary devotee, devotion through wisdom, is what Master called her, mother of wisdom, but devotion through wisdom is how we put it, which is a very interesting in itself, just sort of picture, because it, it, it marries the two realities that sometimes people think of as opposite because they, they misunderstand what true wisdom is. They, they think of wisdom as being as intellectuality, and don't understand that wisdom uh, is the essence of love. That the wiser you become, the more you become, um, the more you gain an understanding of the role and the power of divine love in your life. So through her wisdom, she became the greatest devotee of the Guru. And everything about her life was that. And she had no um, inner restraint about it because she also understood so profoundly what all the scriptures say, which is number one, that the guru has no separate existence from the infinite and is merely there as the doorway through which the disciple walks to reach the infinite. And so her love for Yogananda became, was completely pure in her realization that it was God's power through Yogananda. But at the same time, her love for Yogananda was also um, complete because she had experienced so profoundly and directly in her own life what the scriptures tell us and what we say. But between reading it and knowing it, I think there's a great difference, which was that the divine reached her through the power of her guru. And inasmuch, as in that incarnation as Yanamata, and for probably a number of lifetimes before, certainly as St. Teresa of Avila, whom she probably was at one point, and the part that most of you didn't read, Master likens her unto St. Teresa, you know, and speaks of her. She had a spirit like St. Teresa of Avila, Master said, and talked about her ability to endure suffering and how indifferent she was to suffering, um, the same as St. Teresa had been. I'm sure that was put in there because so many people know that, have heard that Master said that about her, that, that it was reputed that she was to raise it. But uh, everything about Sister Gyanamatha's life that she writes, that we've read up until now, is all about how unwavering, unequivocal, and uncompromising was her desire for God and for God alone. Her, her, her very model for name of this book, God Alone, which, which was just simply how she defined her life and how she said she defined her life from childhood. 
she said, and I remind you, she said, I can't ever remember having a thought in which God was not the background reality, even from the, from the youngest age. And even as a child, when her mother was so unhappy and life was so unhappy around her, she immediately saw that there was nothing in this world to make you happy, and she began to look somewhere else. So that was her whole life. So being so entirely and only one-pointed, when she began to, un began to understand, as she began to understand before she met Yogananda, because she was longing for a guru before she found her guru, and saw that everything she, she was seeking was going to come through him, and that that was the process by which it happened. She also makes reference, and I don't remember which part of the reading she made reference to this, something that Kriyananda referred to every once in a while too, but that we don't really get that much, which was the extent to which Yogananda himself gave the credit to Sri Yukteswar. You know, we, we have this line of gurus in front of us, and Master always talked about it as the line of gurus, and he always talked about the gurus, even though he himself took the role to his own disciples, he would always talk about the gurus. But Swami Kriyananda remarked too that Master, on many different occasions, would make reference to the fact that, that what enabled him to be and do what uh, be and do what he was was the fact that Sri Yukteswar would flow through him and Bhakti would flow through him. Um, when someone asked Yogananda at one point uh, why. He called his churches the churches of all religions, but in fact it was really just the teachings of India and the teachings of Christianity, even though he gave some, you know, there was a shrine here and there, but really it was the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita and the New Testament and that. And he said simply, it's the will of Babaji. And, and there was even a question, and I think I have this correctly, there was some, some question about some small matter about the personnel at Mount Washington. It might even had to do with some children going to public school or something like that. I, I, I can't, I don't want to affirm that because I might be inaccurate, but it was some very small matter. And again, Master's answer to it was that's the way Babaji wants it, when somebody asked him. And uh, in here, there's a reference that uh, Yogananda makes his own words, or Gyanamata quoting his words, about him just saying it's because of Sri Yukteswar. Because that's the way it works. We have the example of Gyanamata. Here we also have the example of Swami Kriyananda, who, whose uh, accomplishments are quite impressive. And he always says it's because of Yogananda coming through him. It's because of his attunement with Yogananda. It's because the guru gives the force. And we have an inclination to want to credit the physical body we see in front of us and think somehow that that's what's happening. But the, the closer a soul gets, and so it seems, to real attunement, the more they recognize their own non-existence, and the more they become devoted um, to the power that's, that's freeing them from all limitation. And even though, impersonally speaking, that power is the infinite, it's God through the Guru. It's God through Yogananda. And that's how many times in Gyanamata's story, she'll say that, you know, God through you. And so, being as the only desire of her heart was to have this experience of the divine, and inasmuch as Yogananda's 
of direct personal attention to her brought about everything she was seeking, it was impossible for her to feel anything but overwhelmingly grateful to him. And she writes in her, in her diary and uh, the parts at the end that all of you have read, she writes so many times uh, in, in very specific terms of how specifically she would feel this. She would write to him because I know you were sending me vibrations. I know you were thinking about me. So it was not at all uh, an abstraction. It wasn't just sort of some idea in her mind, you know, that and even uh, Yogananda himself, there was one letter, and I think it was the master himself, who basically said that a lot of people think they're getting my guidance, but they're not. Or maybe it was she who said it, I don't remember, but there's a letter here where it said, people say that master is guiding them, but they're really just being guided by their own desires. Only, only one who has greatly purified their consciousness is, is really receiving the thoughts of the master. And in fact, the master makes a very interesting statement where he thanks Yanamata for helping him um, by expressing to others what his intentions are. And he commends her because she always understands his intentions. She never misunderstands. And he says, you are able to receive my thoughts directly. But for those who are not able to tune into me directly, then you can speak for me. And it's in that context that they say that many people act like they're think they're getting Yogananda's guidance directly, but really they're just more following their own desires. And I don't mean to make all of you paranoid. <laughs> but I, I honestly feel that a, a real solid degree of humility in regard to inner guidance is very, very important. I, I was speaking to someone recently and, you know, it, it is important to feel right about something inside, but understand what, what you're trying to feel inside is entirely impersonal. When we say, I, I want to feel, you know, what it feels like to me, you're not really saying, I want to know what my ego thinks about it or my brain. You're saying, I want to go inside to the presence of God. And the presence of God no more belongs to you than it belongs to anybody else. So what we're trying to tune into is that which transcends all of us individually. <clears throat> and there's no reason in the world to think that God would speak more directly through you than he would speak through anybody else. That doesn't mean that there's any less chance that he'll speak to you directly. But there's nothing more valid about your own inner thought than the thought that's expressed by someone else. It's only valid if it's valid. Do you see what I mean? And sometimes there's a little bit of danger. I'm going to digress here since I sort of threw out that awful challenge, which I did pull out of the book, but there it is. Um, I have observed Swami Kriyananda himself through the years. He'll often say this. He says, I have very good intuition about everyone but myself. And often he'll ask just everybody what he should do. Should I take this trip? Should I, you know, and he discusses his own plans, often in great detail with just about anybody. Many of you have been around and just sort of talk to everyone about what he's thinking of doing and, and he listens to what other people have to say. He's not um, naive about taking other people's point of view. He doesn't uh, put things up for a vote. But he's always listening for the voice of truth and he doesn't really care whose mouth it comes out of. You know, he, tells, he told the story when he was here the last time. 
about how he came to move to Italy. He was sitting at the lunch table, and this woman named Sylvia, who's, who's a, a heroine over there, and Lessa over here, <laughs> just said, she was virtually, just been there a few months, why don't you move to Italy? She said to him. And he just looked at her, and he just realized that Divine Mother had just spoken to him, and he made the decision to move. I mean, she didn't cause it, but she communicated it to him, and when she said it, he recognized it. You know, of course he recognized it because it resonated with him, but he didn't say, no, 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 I have to think about this, I have to go inside. He just, he, he knew what truth felt like. And he doesn't limit it to just coming out of his own self. So the humility that we need to use in wondering whether we're really hearing Master's voice or just the convenient voice of our own desires, is we test it. You know, we test it and we listen and we, we see what kind of feedback the universe gives us. And again, it's not a popular vote. It's not that, oh, it must be true because everyone agrees with me, or it must be false because no one agrees with me. It's not, unfortunately not as simple as that. It just has to be balanced because the kind of um, capacity Gyanamata had to really hear the Guru's thoughts was not common. And, and that line, as I remind you of where I started, where Master commended her for being able to help others who were less capable of hearing directly, is something that we all have to really keep in mind. We also have to appreciate. That's why God put us in the community. And there's, I, I sometimes see an unfortunate reality that we're all tempted by, which is here we are in a community, but let's make as little use of it as possible. You know, I'll live here, but I'll still, I'll still draw, draw the same fence around myself and cling to my own right to have my own way, instead of really saying, well, we're all deputies together. Minister could speak through anyone. And it's, again, not a question of sourcing, <coughs> but just being open. But coming back to where was, but that is a huge part of it because we listen to it, we see what Yanamata did here and we have to understand how to replicate it. Um, I say that to people too because I hear sometimes just because of the position I have and, and the habit of authority that I have, I'll hear people giving me more credit than I deserve too. And I, I have to say to people, look, it's really not because Asha said it. The question is whether it's true, you know? And if it's true, then we should pay attention, and if it isn't, we should figure out what it is, that's all. You know, it's just as simple as that. There's no particular power in anybody's name. There's only power in what is. And Swamiji himself, you know, even though he's had more right than anybody I know to say, this is Master's idea, he almost, almost never does. He almost never even uses the word intuition in reference to himself, only sometimes in frustration. <laughs> but usually he just puts the idea out there. And you know, you just have, and you have the opportunity, in fact, the necessity for yourself to figure out whether this is a true idea. He says himself, the truth is not persuasive, then what is the point of using authority to try to get it? It should be persuasive on its own. It doesn't mean he doesn't advocate for his ideas, because he will, if there's something logical to say. And so should we all. But only from the point of view of finding out what's true. Well, in sister's life, she had no inhibition about throwing herself completely into the divine search. And as soon as she recognized, which she did immediately when she met Yogananda, that he was her lifeline. You know, she just gave herself completely 
in the in the in the most pure and beautiful picture of love, of which human love is but the imitation. That's why I was saying we have to realize that the divine comes first. And the resemblance that we see between her divine romance with Yogananda is the epitome of what the romance is. And what do they describe? They describe such a union of consciousness that they didn't have to talk or to meet afterwards. That they were so united in their, in their one-pointed mutual devotion to divine truth that he himself said, I merely have to think something, and then within a day or so, sister will write me. And, and she would, there were many examples you know, through this whole book and also here at the end, of her just knowing what he said when she wasn't even there. Because she would literally hear his voice in her mind. And, and we have to appreciate the fact that that's perfectly possible to do. Yogananda could, could send a thought telepathically and she would just receive it. And he writes in there and she writes back to him about how they talked to each other. Just talked to each other without talking to each other because she, would, she, she devoted herself to being able to do that. Now, um, the first lesson that comes out of this, especially when you all read Master's letters to her and her letters of gratitude to the guru, is that we ourselves have to really um, be very um, we have to recognize magnificent potential of that relationship and, and really raise our consciousness to the level in which it happened and realize that that's where we're trying to go and ask ourselves if we have the courage to, to love as completely and trust as completely as Sister Gyanamata did. And I just leave that there as a meditation for everyone to try, you know, to, to, to work within yourself because again she exemplifies what it is that we're all striving to for. I was remembering um, the life of St. Teresa of Avila, which I think is related to this. Because um, with Teresa, who was devoted, of course, to Jesus, um, Christ used to visit her in her cell. And she would just be in her cell, and Jesus would just sit with her. She had, she had the same divine romance with him, except he would materialize for her. And she would be in the parlor sometimes. And... Uh, and would, would excuse herself from the parlor of the convent, but at the time the nuns could have visitors in the parlor. And she would excuse herself, saying, there's someone in my cell waiting for, for me. And it was literally that Christ was in her cell, so she'd have to go and be with him. But she was on very intimate, friendly terms with Jesus. He was her guru, um, which just gives, again, the credence to the thought that Yogananda might be the same soul again. But nonetheless, he was her friend. And in the same way, you, you, uh, in the same way, Swamiji talks about relating to Master, and you hear all the stories about all the disciples with Master. He was really there as a person, and they also related to him in that way. I mean, again, I'm trying to use the words. It's a real relationship. Except it's the it is the model from which all our aberrations flow. But what I was starting to say about her receiving. Yogananda's thoughts has to do with the idea of surrender. Because in the section, I think primarily her diary, if I'm not mistaken, I'll just see where I marked it there, or her meditations, it was on her meditations. The, the questions that I wrote after reading this were, what does it mean to overcome the self? 
and they words surrender, rebellion, overcoming desires, revolt, all those different words. And so it seemed to me that because her romance with Yogananda was based so completely on the surrender of her own will and the cooperation with his, and because all of her meditations, so much of the section on meditations, is all about desires and she uses the word over and over, more perfect surrender, she says many, many times. If only I had the courage. She talks about how Rajasi encouraged her to a state of more perfect surrender. That all of us find ourselves in this sort of bridge position as we move on the spiritual path. Um, I, I were right in, in the little bird story that we read every week in the Festival of Life, which has so much power. We, we, we start out as pure expressions of the spirit. We get engaged in the experience of the world, and the experience of the world confuses our purpose. We had a great mission that God gave us to expand, to multiply, to share. Alas, we forgot our mission. And we got very involved in the idea that the power that we, were, we experienced and the gratification that we experienced on many levels was the result of, our, of, of, the, of the little self asserting itself. The little bird in flight for the first time gloried in his newfound strength and began to think how foolish I would be to share this strength with others. It, it, what else is wisdom, he said, except to hoard, keep what is mine for myself. And the little bird held on to this thought, even though repeatedly he lost everything he had. That's what we say every week. Okay, and that's who we are. We, we had this mission. We got involved in the experience of the physical body and all the world of the senses and all the apparent um, relationship between, between myself and my grabbing for things and it's making me feel good. And we become the, the sense of who we are orbits around the idea of ego. And ego is the infinite spirit identified with the limited body and by extension the mind, the thoughts, and all the experiences of this body and all the other bodies we've had. And that, that's the pillar point of ego. And it, 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 draw, it holds all our karma. You know, things that happen, we make them sick, as Yogananda said, of thinking that everything that concerns us concerns us personally. And so all the events stay with us as our karma because we have this essential belief that the, that, that the emanating point of our reality is, is myself in an ego sense. I was very struck by Gyanamanta's statement that at the moment of death, all your good deeds will appear as nothing to you. And the only thing that will matter is your conscious connection with the infinite. And I sort of thought, oh, all my good deeds. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> you know, because there was a, a part that thinks because we're doing all this good work, it will make a difference. I reassured myself by saying, well, all that, that service will help us expand our consciousness. But still, I remember a devotee came to Ramakrishna as his report in the gospel there. And talked about all the hospitals he built, all the orphans he saved, and all this. Just, he just spent a long time just talking about all the good works he'd done. And Ramakrishna, after, after a moment, said, My, what did God do before you were incarnated? <laughs> 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 so he had it quite the opposite. <laughs> but nonetheless, instead of thinking of ourselves as a part of all that is, we think ourselves, of ourselves as something separate from the infinite creation. 
so then the thought begins to come to us as it happens to the little bird that we get smashed enough, we enter the stage called the quest. And most of us are in the quest at this point, and the quest is a very simple process. We're actually asking the question, um, well, excuse me, when he goes from the, from the purity of it, he goes into the revolt. And the revolt, we're, we're now between the revolt and the quest, because the revolt is, okay, you say this is the process of happiness, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> right? And that's the revolt. God says, this is your mission and how it works. And we say, well, you have your opinion, I have it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, we, we do that continuously because we know what Gyanamata says, we know what Master says, we've heard what many people have said, but we still say, well, you have your opinion, I have mine. And, and we live, a lot of us, in a state intermittently of rebellion all the time. You say that all the karma that comes to me is really car my karma? Well, maybe it is, maybe it is. I had to, you know, I, I spoke on Sunday about, and after class last time, about the process I've been going through of helping my parents, which, by God's grace, is finally working out. But I, I, I've been going through this for quite a number of years, and I had to appreciate it. Actually, the thought came to me right in the middle of Sunday service, which is why I spoke about it, that still, a lot of me, on a very subtle level, still pretend that this really wasn't mine to do. You know, it's very subtle. It's, it's, not a, it's not a big thought, because I definitely accepted it as my duty. But just even the way I would emphasize the word duty, I began to appreciate was my way of pretending that, that I was just holding myself still a little distance, still in revolt against an idea that I would give wholehearted intellectual acceptance to. That this, in other words, to really, as Gyanamata writes in there, it, what comes to you is from God, no matter how difficult, don't merely accept it, you have to glorify it. That was the phrase she used. You know, but if we, if we do anything short of glorifying it, there's some part of it that's still in revolt against it, isn't it so? Because if we really love it, we glorify it. But if we resist it at all, so we live in this revolt against the thought that, that reality should revolve around something other than my ego. Even no matter how nice your ego has become, see, that's the tricky part, because by the time we get to here, for the most part, we have pretty nice ego. And I don't just mean charming and attractive. I mean that, that we're, you know, we're pretty nice people. But even what our ego likes to do for its own pleasure is generally pretty nice stuff. Pretty serviceful, pretty kind. You know, we feel pretty remorseful if we screw up. You know, we're just good. We're good egos. But, but we're not liberated. It's not the same. To have, to have your ego behave like a nice person is not the same as, as not having one. It's definitely progress, but it's not the same at all. We're still in some more refined stage of revolt. And that's where Sister Gyanamata's advice over and over again, it's not enough just to be good. You have to give up absolutely everything. You have to put something else at the center of your entire consciousness. And so after we get creamed often enough on the revolt, even though, even though repeatedly the little bird lost everything he had, I mean, there is so much subtlety in sentence by sentence of the festival of life, even though repeatedly he lost everything he had, the bird still thought it was just a question of him not quite executing it correctly wasn't that the whole concept was flawed. It was that he just hadn't figured out how to do it right. Does that sound good enough? <laughs> you know, I had a shade of recognition there. I mean, I don't know if any of you did. 
Mm -hmm. But that's, that's why we're reincarnated over and over. Because we can't accept that the whole premise is wrong. We just think that we have quite everything. Married the wrong person, lived in the wrong city, was too short, was too tall, was too fat, was too thin, you know, whatever it was. I saw a picture once of this woman in you know, one of the Sunday supplements. I've never heard of her since, but she was trying to go to the star. She looked like a female lover, which is exactly the way you should look these days, to be a female movie star. She even had, I think she actually even had leopard skin on, you know. But I, she had this um, predatory determination to be famous. You could just see it on her face. And I thought, you know, my God, how many incarnations has she been working up to this? You know, just trying to become this. She made herself perfect for the role. So currently, she didn't quite have it together yet because maybe she's famous now, that's it. And to be fair, I have no idea. I don't remember her name, and if she was, I wouldn't even know. So aside, but you could just see her, her absolute effort on this foolish path with how forceful she was in it. But then we get creamed enough that we enter the stage called the quest. And the quest is when the ego lets go enough to say, okay, I know what I think, but I also wonder what's true. And, and we start living our lives as we're living them more or less with at least some interest in what's actually true. And not merely just a commitment to what we already know. You know, that was why with this whole issue of the cross, I decided let me just ask Swami because he'll just say whether it's okay or not, because otherwise everybody's gonna to have to say whether they like crosses or not. You know? And everybody's gonna have a real good reason why they do or they don't, sort of like the discussions we had about the pews and the chairs and the chapel. You know, everybody's perfectly certain. But it doesn't matter. You know, that's really the right thing to do. Let's in tune with Master and all of this. So we begin to ask the question, what's really going on? And as we ask that long enough, we come to a true And, and, and the quest leads us to discipleship, as it led Yanamata first to becoming a disciple before she had a master, because she understood that everything was going to come to her as a disciple, so she would behave as if he was there, because she knew he was there somewhere. She didn't know who he was, and she'd never met him, but she knew he existed, and that, that was where it was going to come, so she practiced being in that relationship before she had anyone to be in that relationship too. Because the quest, had let her out of any state, any level of rebellion. And if you if you look through some of the earlier, very challenging um, chapters that we read here, you know, over and over and over again, what is she saying? She's saying to people, stop resisting the pathway to happiness. You know, stop being so confused. Stop resenting. Stop thinking that, as she wrote to that man, your cousin asked the question, how can I have my cake and eat it too? You know, you, how can I behave according to the indulgence of all my ego desires and become a very spiritual person? You know, how can I be a good disciple and yet not have to listen to Yogananda when I don't like what he said? And she, and she's saying to people, without ever using the analogy of the bird, but she's saying you've got to stop rebelling. You've got to stop thinking, no matter that you know, you've got to stop doing that, which is going to cause you to lose everything. You've got to put something else at the center of your reality than just your ego. And again, because this is the last class, I want to emphasize what I said before. You see how we separate from psychology at this point? Because it really, at a certain point, doesn't make a whiff of difference what you think, what you feel, what happened to you in the past, how you got here. None of it matters. Because the point is, no matter what it is, 
You have to take it out of the center. And what are you going to put into the center? Well, divine law says, and I just have to quote that because I don't have the capacity to look at it and know it, but my quest has led me to believe, divine law says, God reaches you through the Guru. And so Divine Mother has given us these living examples, still living examples, the example of what does a life look like divinely made. And Gyanamata describes in some of her letters so sweetly about the tremendous effort that Yogananda was making all the time to serve the world. And she talked, you know, again, in a way that's so personal that if we're not, if we haven't really thought deeply about it, it startles us a little bit because we take Master and place him so far outside of anything that we've experienced. But she talks about how he worked so hard all the time. And I love the phrase she used, and never missed an opportunity to expand the work. You know, he, he never missed an opportunity. He dedicated himself like any hardworking person would. And of course, anyone who's had any relationship to Swami Kriyananda sees an exact replica of that same thing. Sometimes Swami will stand here and it confuses people. I say stand here because he's done this several times. He gave like a 20 minute beginning of a lecture once and the first 20 minutes was just the story of what he'd done in the last two years. And since his heart surgery was how he told the story, starting with editing the, the preface to a book the, set, the day after his heart surgery while he was still under anesthesia. <laughs> so, but it had to be done and then he just, and then he talked about how the doctor told him to take a full year off, and then he described what that year was like, you know, books and lecture tours and music, <laughs> just, you know, two of the busiest years of his life, at the time when the doctors told him to do nothing. And if you don't, if you're not tuned in, the thoughts come to you like, what an egotist. You know, just sitting here telling us all the things he's accomplished. He's doing many different things. But one of them was quite simply saying, look, this is what, it, this is what a life lived for God looks like. You know, I'm here to spread the message of self-realization. That's what life is. Yanamata writes about Master. We're here to spread the message of self-realization. And she says to herself, I want to be one of them. So then she becomes someone who, even though sick in bed, does everything she can to keep um, spreading the message because she has moved out of, she, she's moved from, removed from the center of her sense of self, self and is put in the center of her sense of self, Guru's consciousness. I want to be Guru's consciousness. Because this egoic self and its whole idea is just a delusion that traps us. It's just the revolt. It's just resisting the first commission that we got. God said, you know, be, you are part of all that is. And we say, no, I'm not. And he says, okay, then just, you know, get yourself creamed over and over again. Because <laughs> acting in opposition in separateness all that is causes you to be crushed over and over until you say, that's not what I want. What I want is the divine in the center. How do I put the divine in the center? And then God sends these great messengers. He sends the masters. He sends their disciples. He sends the disciples of the disciples and the disciples of the disciples of the disciples of the disciples. Each one of whom has the direct capacity to be a channel to the extent to which they have to their own center to, to help us all understand you know, what should be at the center of our thinking. And I, I realize that this magic word attunement that people use all the time, which is a great word, fabulous word, is a little mysterious and not at all mysterious. It's simply 
to act and think and be in harmony with the teaching. Really. It's just a question of being more interested in what's true than what I think. And just always asking what is true. Now what do I think? What, you know, what is the, what true in the sense of what attitude, action, and reality will take me closer to the divine and what will take me farther away? Now we have to exercise that kindly toward ourselves. Remember we started at the beginning? We can't, we can't be unkind with ourselves. Yanamata's perfect phrase. We have to take those actions appropriate to our station. That's part of the teaching of self-realization. You can't say that the only truth is the absolute one. Part of it is to practice yoga, to work with what you have, and to move forward in that direction. But then Sister Gyanamanta saw that the doorway, uh, the method out of this horrible bondage of ego is to, to replace ego with the consciousness of God. And how is God going to reach me? Through my group. So she wanted to replace every sense of self with the awareness of Yogananda. And what is that except the absolute definition of love? I mean, think about it. I myself have never been a parent, but I know many of you have given birth to children. And I, I, you see, uh, uh, the way a new parent is, even a pregnant woman, you know, you just can't stop thinking about the, this incredible fact of this wonderful person that's come to you. You know, I've held babies. I know what that feels like. You know, this wonderful, soft, gushy, little bundle of love that just clings to you. And your heart, you don't have to try. You know, there's no, like, discipline involved for most people, unless the child throws up on you or something. <laughs> I mean, I know you have your moments. Every, every parent has their moments. But still, you don't have to discipline yourself to try to love that child. You can't help yourself. There's just, you just, there's nothing you could do to, to forget. It's just there with you all the time. And people imagine, you know, romantic love, and that's the image of romantic love, is this great sort of preoccupation with one another. We have this little teensy-weensy experience. Of, and again, you don't have to try. It becomes who you are. But people also discover, parents and sweethearts discover, that love also is a conscious act of will. And that there's many, many other factors that come up that make you not want to do it. You know, you don't want to cooperate with your sweetheart. You, you don't want to get up at 3 in the morning, and 4 in the morning, and 5 in the morning, and 6 in the morning. You know, all the things that you have to do to love someone is by a conscious act of will. You, you develop that love so that you can be closer and closer. Because you're wanting to replace the sense of I am separate and I just take care of myself with the sense that I this is mine, I belong to it. That's just exactly what Sister Gyanamata did when she finally realized the love that would really free her from all limitation forever. And so the the intimate, personal, romantic, um, extravagant expression of gratitude and affection affection that she expressed for Yogananda but also the purity of it. Because it, there's nothing in it of self. You know, so much love is not really love at all, as Master himself said. It's just convenience. And you love someone as long as they please you. And when they cease to please you or it ceases to be convenient, you stop loving them. So Amikriyananda remarked, knowing that 
was really saying. He said, I'm a little odd. He said, once I love someone, I never stop loving them, no matter what they do. You know, just a simple statement like that. Really, I never stop loving them, no matter what they do. And we've seen it in his relationship with self-realization fellowship. No matter what they've done to him, he's just never stopped loving them. He says, why should I? He said, then I lose twice. That's how he puts it. I lose not only because they've mistreated me, but I lose because I no longer have the pleasure of loving them. Now I've closed my heart to something in God's creation. Why would I do that? Because you can only do that though if you replace. So uh, the ego with the infinite. So Sister Gautamanta demonstrates by these very, very intimate letters, letters to Master, the extent to which she just by a conscious, deliberate act of will removed from the center of her self-definition, herself. There's a chant that uh, we used to sing, before my eyes, my dead self lies. It's a quote from Gyanamata. Oh, bliss beyond compare. I remember sometimes the nuns used to sing that a lot. And uh, sometimes when they knew would come, they'd hear us singing that. And they would just, you know, like, they just didn't know how to relate to it. Oh, bliss before my eyes, my dead self lies. Oh, bliss beyond compare. But once you become a devotee, and you realize that the greatest obstacle to your happiness is yourself, then you dedicate everything you can to just getting rid of it and putting the divine in, in its place. A long meditation by sneezing into the microphone. <laughs> I had that unique distinction until recently, and now someone who shall rename, remain nameless has become my partner in crime. <laughs> It's been an impressive experience. I was on, being on the receiving end, I really was able to enjoy it to the full. I only got to watch the reaction it created the last time I did it. It was worth watching. <laughs> Makes you want to do it again on purpose, you know, in your more impish moments. Um, <laughs> um, during the break, I was asked a very good question, which, I mean, it's as good as any place, of course. We can, I mean, we can do this whole class over again, and we probably will in a few years, and just emphasize completely different things. But um, someone asked, essentially, how do you do it? Um, the phrase she used was a very good one, which is self-forgetfulness. And um, the, I want to start just simply with the phrase self-forgetfulness, because we do, um, we do get confused as to what it actually looks like to be a devotee. And this whole discussion that I was talking about, about re, you know, putting something else at the center uh, around which your energy can radiate other than your ego, um, is, is a question of simply shifting your attention. Because it's so, um, it, it's so deceptive when the ego has a hold of it, it's so confusing because we think it's, it's a thing somehow. We think there's some fixed entity. But there's no fixed entity. It's entirely and only a question of where we direct our attention. Remember earlier in this class I talked about that? A saint and a sinner are just, the, you know, you, be, you cease to be a sinner when you, when you cease behaving like one, when you cease focusing your attention on those things which take you away from the light and start giving your energy to those things which take you toward the light. It's, it's, and so... The way we overcome the ego is to forget about it. We, you know, ego is the soul identified with the body and all of the limiting conditions that that implies. 
when we cease to identify so strongly with the body and all its limiting conditions. And that's why, you know, that we, this principle keeps coming in, that you have to overcome your desires. And everybody always thinks of it as physical desires or sexual desires or desires for food or sleep or all these things. But it's just the desire to function as a separate ego. That's what you have to overcome. And, and you, you access that in all the ways that Gyanamana talks about, Gyanamata talks about. It's not enough to, to give up negative things. You also have to give up all those little things that are all based, that are harmless in themselves, but are all based on this self-definition that you're trying to overcome. You have to put your attention somewhere else. And even just trying to, feeling the need for those things. If God sends them to you, you don't turn away from them. But feeling the need for them is because we've identified with this limited being and therefore we keep acting in ways that support that identification. So the way we change that is as much as possible on an every single day basis we act to affirm identification with something else. Something larger, something more expansive, something more inclusive. Ah, for you are a part of all that is. That's what we say every week in the Festival of Light. Share with others, for you are a part of all that is. So when one wants, for example, to take something for oneself at the expense of others, you would only want to do that because you've identified yourself with your body and all its limiting conditions. You haven't identified yourself with the fact that you are a part of all that is. If you're a part of everything, you, you, wouldn't, you, never, you couldn't even dream of taking it at the expense of someone else because... That's you too. And that leads to moral behavior and ethical behavior and selfless behavior because, not because you're trying, but because you have gradually broken the identification of the limited one. And, and you just identify with something else so there's no self to get in your way anymore. And that means also humility. As I was speaking earlier about why do you think that I, that the voice of God is going to speak so much more clearly through my mouth than through someone else's mouth. It may not speak through either of our mouths because we both may be so involved in ignorance that we don't know, but it can also, it can speak from anywhere. Um, if we're less identified with this little one, you know, see, even how, spirit, how ego in, in infects spirituality, I have to go by my guidance. No, you have to go by guidance. You see, it's different, my guidance. I remember Swami Kriyananda said to Anandamoy Ma once about Kriya, and he was speaking about the fact that the word Kriya means there's many, because Kriya just means action. Yogananda calling our technique Kriya Yoga was, he just put that word on top of it. So Swami was talking to Anandamoy Ma, and he said, my Kriya, meaning the Kriya taught by my guru, Paramahansa Yogananda. And Ma sort of looked at him and said, my Kriya? You know, like, oh, isn't this cute? Now you own it. You know, here's this infinite power, this infinite truth, and it's your Kriya. How cute. And, and, you know, and Kriyananda knew exactly what she was saying, and they had a very sweet relationship. And she says, oh, no, I mean the Kriya taught by my guru. But therefore, just like, and, and every little thing that we do that causes us to affirm our separateness, we need to gradually change it. And so the key to self-forgetfulness is to constantly affirm that I am a part of all that is. Every time one feels defensive, every time one feels weak, every time one feels isolated and lonely, every time one feels helpless, overwhelmed, all of the things. It's so fascinating 
It's, it's, in a, it's a fascinating meditation to take this definition of eco, the soul identified with the body and all that comes with it, and realize how every delusion that we have stems from that. You know, and it, it makes ego much more dynamic than just thinking, oh yeah, it's just ego. You know, that, of course it's just ego, but when we really see that, we begin to know how to get ourselves out of it. And so anything that causes us, causes energy to flow through us in a selfless manner that takes our mind off of ourself. When I first came to Ananda Village in 1971, within the first few months that I was there, I ended up being in charge of the retreat kitchen at the meditation retreat. It was a much smaller operation. We cooked for about 30 people. Um, but we cooked, I say we, because it was mostly I. Uh, the retreat provided meals six days a week, three meals a day. And on the seventh, we didn't rest. We drove to town to get the supplies for the other six days. <laughs> and the, big, the we was pretty much of an I. I mean, I, I, was a, I was a strong girl anyway, but I could lift 100 pounds in those days because I had to lift 100 pounds. It was just, you know, there I was and it had to be moved. I could do a lot uh, that I, because I just had to do it. I drove a big truck and I, mean, I, and I was, I, I, did, I did it mostly single-handed with a slightly mentally deficient girl as my assistant. <laughs> so she was, she, let's call her eccentric. She was not... She was a bubble, a bubble over, as they say. But, uh, uh, but I, I was just so happy because I was so busy that I just never had a moment to stop and think how I was doing. And I, I really remember, and it was, I, it, I remember this, someone coming up to me saying once, and saying, well, how are you? You know, with that exaggerated kind of, uh, you know, that, that how are you, kind of look. And I went, <gasps> me? <laughs> it was just like there was nobody in my life to care how I was doing, and as a consequence, I, had not, I hadn't stopped to ask the question. I was just so busy, and I was startled to be asked. It was, it was the oddest thing. That's why I remember it. It just startled me to have somebody direct so much attention to me all of a sudden, like that. And then I, 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 I got the idea that it's just a matter of forgetting the self. It's not getting the self all perfectly organized and just as happy as you want it, which is what psychology tells you. You just make the mud puddle neat. That's all you're doing. So you get the ego all lined up. I'm not knocking it, but I'm trying to make a distinction for you as devotees. You get the mud puddle neat. You've got to forget about the mud puddle. You've got to get interest in the ocean, which is just over the hill. So it's just a constant sort of day by day by day giving out of your energy, sharing because you are a part of all that is and affirming that until it just becomes not natural for you to think about yourself. And every circumstance becomes just a question of the energy running through, whatever it might be, whether it's cooking or taking care of children or teaching school or singing or dancing or gardening. It's looking at it and going into it. And, and that's how we work, and that's why often... In the context of Ananda, people work exceedingly hard. And you think, well, this is a, you know, I need time for myself. I have to have time to think about myself. And yes, you do have to have time to do sadhana. And no, you shouldn't go beyond your balance point. But at the same time, a lot of times we think we need more time than we actually need. Because what we want is time to go back and re-identify with the ego. (laughs) You know, and if we find ourselves getting pulled too much into a flow of energy, we feel insecure. 
and we want to pull back and have time to re-identify with the ego. Now, I, I don't want to overstate that, but that's often why we do so much at Ananda and work so hard, is because that's, that's one very powerful way to break the identification. You just serve and serve and serve and serve and think of others and give to others, and after a while there is no self to be worried about. And that's, the, that's true karma yoga. That's how, now that is exactly the picture that Gyanamata makes of her life. Just say yes and make it snappy. That's what she said. Remember? Because she was lying there in bed and she heard the master's mother, father, friend, child, beloved, everything to her. So all of the impulse that, that a person in love has to think about the object of her beloved, she directs all of that spontaneously and beautifully. You know, it, it, she, she described, as we talked about last week, it's an, it's an act of, it's a deliberate act of will by a systematic method. You know, and she talks about all the God-reminding things she did and does until it became spontaneous. Because what happens is, as she describes in here, in you know, many of the many pages we read, when the channel is open, the flood of love that comes back just inspires you to do it more and more. And so when we finally let go of the ego and begin to put something larger in that center, you just can't go back. It's just so, it's so ugly to go back. It's so small. It's so confining. You just can't imagine ever wanting to go back there. Why would you do that? And at first you have to fight so hard to get out of that identification. And once you've broken free, nothing in the world could force you back into it. Just like, um, well, I was hearing about a, a, a minister who um, never wants to know how much people in his congregation are donating. This was presented as a as a big example. Because he doesn't want to treat people different if they give more or give less. And I thought, well, you know, that's a very, that's a very nice thing on a certain level. But on the other level, I thought, but why would you even be tempted to do anything for money? You know, and you sort of, you, you, you go through stages. First you discipline yourself, and then you think, but why would I do anything for money? It's so touching in here when she talks about giving money there's two letters in there where she talks about giving Yogananda money. One was uh, she and her son and her daughter-in-law gave him money for a book. Uh, maybe it had to do with publishing. I mean, having lived through all that we've lived through, <laughs> I'm sure they were impoverished. SRF was not wealthy at the, during the time Yogananda was alive. Rajasi gave them a million dollars just before he died, which was a lot of money, and that's been the basis of their fortune ever since, and now they're exceedingly wealthy. A million dollars in 1952 was a huge amount of money, and they invested it, and now they have unlimited funds. Uh, certainly, they spend it as if they do on things they shouldn't be spending it. <laughs> um, but they were impoverished when Yogananda was alive. You know, they were they were really impoverished. And at a certain point during the years that Gyanamata was there, there was someone who, who was in charge, and Yogananda was out lecturing, and he sent all the money back, and that person absconded with the funds. You know, these are the real things happened. And that's why she talks about sacrifice and suffering and so on. Um, so I'm sure they needed money. And so she gathered this little bit of money and gave it to him. And then another time she gives him some money to, for India. But, but you read it. At least that's how it read, I read it. It just seemed like for other people coming up to be generous enough to give money, it would be real expansive. But for her, you could see... For her to give money, 
And it was almost like she had to explain to Master, look, I'm going to give you some money. Just like, it, 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 it was so trivial. It was because she, she was giving every ounce of her consciousness. And for her to contract her consciousness down to give him a little money, uh, you could feel how peculiar it was for her to do that. But you no, know, she was inspired to and wanted to. But there was no expansion in it. She, she, she'd gone through that level of identity and so far beyond it. You see? And so, so what happens is, the more you practice it, the more fun you have. Those early years at Ananda Village, when I was doing that kitchen job, I discovered just the sheer absolute bliss of, of self-forgetfulness, which I had never known. I'd always craved it. But, but it was forced upon me by my labors, because, and I loved my labors. I loved what I was doing. But because I was doing what I loved, or because I put love into what I was doing, um, because you, you, you love something when you put energy into it. People often believe that you just wait until you love something enough to put energy into it. But in fact, if you put out energy, then you discover love. It works more like that. And then in that flow, you just forget yourself. So, um, and, and by consciously then doing it for the guru with the consciousness of the guru. Well, Rick brought um, this book, you know, of course, which we did before. And there's two chapters in here about the avatar. And the first chapter is about the avatar in his own incarnation. And the second is the completion of avatar, which means descent of spirit, which is that you have to bring that consciousness all the way into you. And he gives it the visualization on page, uh, for those of you who have it, 243, um, is to visualize the spirit descending into you, all the way into you. And that's, of course, what Gyanamata became. She became, she just moved as Yogananda. After Kriyananda wrote The Essence of Self-Realization, he said afterwards, from that point, he made the absolute commitment that he would have no thoughts except Yogananda's thoughts. And what that means is that every impulse of energy that arises within you, you begin by saying, just as she says here, um, as as Yogananda writes in here, he says, whenever I felt a dif- faced a difficult decision, I asked, "What would Sri Yukteswar do?" You know, and that was that was one of, that was the other example. What would Sri Yukteswar do? Yogananda said, when Kriyananda faces a difficult question, he says, "What would Yogananda do?" And and Swami emphasizes not what did Yogananda do, but what would Yogananda do as a dynamic. And of course, in 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 the life that I've lived, every situation, I say, "How would Swami handle this?" Because I can't access Yogananda directly, but I've seen Swamiji. And then Swami says, and it's appropriate, you know, for those of you who haven't seen Swami enough, ask what would Jyotish do, what would Vidura do, even ask what would I do, insofar as it's a, it's a good example, insofar as it's not, don't. But if it's a good example, which it sometimes is, because I'm doing what Swami did, you know, and I know what it's supposed to be, that's, it, that's all it is. Instead of saying, I like it, I don't like it, this is how I want it, this is how I do it, say, what would Swami do? What would Sister Gyanamata do? And someone writes to Sister, you know, when I'm in a difficult position, I say, how would Sister handle this? You see what a beautiful story it is, just piece by piece? In the, in the elementary school, people say, how would Barbara Rabin handle it? Because you're there and she knows how to handle it, so you try to tune in to her. How would she handle it? You forget my preferences, how I want it. You go to those who really are, have demonstrated to you that they know how, and you think, how would Barbara handle this? Then you know how to know how to handle it after that. 
We all just help each other step by step. And all of it is what? Identifying with something other than just our own little mind. And so it's not complicated. Is it easy? No. But is it simple? Yes. And keep it very, very simple. Um, and then you won't waste a lot of time going in circles around it. And don't, as I was also talking to someone during the break, revolt against it, rebel against it. Accept at your peril. You know, just accept that this is the way it is and go in that direction. Well, are there any other thoughts or questions or, or else we may be done? This has really been just, I'm just, this has been such exactly what I hoped it would be, you know, which is just sort of bringing a great saint into the heart of our community and making her our friend. You know, these six weeks, everyone says to each other, well, this about that, and so many conversations have been solved by saying, well, remember what Sister Gyanamata said. And uh, it's just thrilling all through Christmas to have her presence with us and Master said she left spiritual footprints that would be in front of us forever. And if we merely walk the path that she trod, we will reach the bliss that uh, she received. And as she herself said, when she read about the great attainment of the saints, remember, she said, I walk around in a dream of happiness merely because such a possibility exists. And so we can too. So bless you. Thank you.